Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch and this is episode 30 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everybody's doing well out there and having a good week. Uh, as I've mentioned on the show previously, I'm still kind of having a hard time with the state that the world is in. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I'm not in a position where I get to shelter in place. I have to be out in the world on a daily basis, and it is a little intimidating. And last week, it, it really definitely took its toll on me, and yet somehow I managed to find comfort and solace in the form of movies, which is part of why I love film. And interestingly, it wasn't a film for the podcast, although I did watch a couple of those for some upcoming conversations, but I put on Marvel's The Avengers as background noise Sunday evening, just kind of planning on working on some other stuff and quickly found myself sucked into the movie. And two and a half hours later, it was done and the world was saved from the Chitauri and I felt a lot better. And it wasn't something I expected to come about from watching The Avengers over again for probably the fifth or sixth time, but that's some of the joy of good storytelling and good filmmaking that we can find comfort and solace and refuge in those stories. Last week, we talked about Fletch, a comedy I hadn't seen. And as part of our conversation, we talked a little bit about our comedic inspirations growing up, which actors or actresses were the comedians who inspired us, who made us laugh most. And that became this week's Friday inquiry question. Who was that comedic actor or actress for you? Got a slew of responses from former guests and listeners. Adam Thomas on Facebook said, Leslie Nielsen was, as I was growing up, one of the funniest men I'd ever seen. He was a master of playing everything completely straight when necessary, as everything was chaotic comedy gold around him. James Rodriguez said, Jim Carrey. His films were a favorite for my family to watch together. Thomas Mariani said Steve Martin was the apex of adult silliness to me when I was younger, and now he's the ideal in terms of evolving one's style while maintaining an inability to take oneself totally seriously. Chad Schreiner said, I normally do not react too much to celebrity deaths because I did not know the person, and outside of general empathy, any feelings I have are mostly selfish for not being able to see them in a movie again. That said, I felt a loss when Robin Williams died, and I think that's due to how much of an impact he had on my childhood. Christy Telsch said Phil Hartman and Bill Cosby before I knew he was a deplorable scoundrel. Yeah, way to go a little sad there, Christy, on, on both those answers. Uh, Luis Ramirez said Bill Murray. There was something about his sarcastic wit that appealed to me as a teenager in the 80s. Actually, it still appeals to me today. Johanna, previous guest, said Bill Murray. And Price chimed in with another response saying one that I didn't mention on the show was Will Ferrell. Over on Twitter, Chris Talent said Robin Williams, and Alex Kunkka jumped in, saying you beat me to it. And Garrett, of Garrett Talks to Himself, said it was a toss-up between Jim Carrey and Robin Williams. Love them both, and it inspired me to be as funny as possible. And I should add in, just to call Price out on something, uh, I was listening to his podcast this past week, and it was revealed that, speaking of Robin Williams, 
he's never seen Dead Poets Society, which I'm shocked at. I didn't realize there was anyone who hadn't seen it. In fact, when I was a teacher, I used to show that in my classroom, uh, completely related to material we were covering in class, but also because it's a brilliant movie and I think everybody should be exposed to it. So Price, add that to your have not seen this movie list and fix that one as soon as you can. Of course, Friday inquiries go up every week on Friday on social media. You can find us at Have Not Seen This on Twitter and Have Not Seen This Podcast on Facebook. This week, we're turning our focus to a different classic comedy, uh, this time The Graduate from 1967, a movie I had not seen until doing this podcast. And it's brought to me by Chad Schreiner, who chimed in on last week's Friday Inquiry. Uh, had a wonderful conversation with Chad. He's from the Script Promptu podcast, which I highly recommend you check out. Uh, at the time that we recorded this, I hadn't really gotten to put much time into listening to it, but I, I really enjoy it, and I may uh, get a chance to, to show up on that podcast sometime soon. But definitely worth checking out, as is our conversation about a classic movie that somehow had escaped me, uh, listening to a lot of interviews about it recently because it's on the AFI top 100 list. And there are several podcasts I listen to that are making their way through that list. And it was about time that I got to see it. So now I've seen it and we talked about it. And here's your chance to listen to our conversation. So here we go with 1967's The Graduate. So what kind of movies do you like? What kind of what's what's your jam? I like a lot of movies and and I I like movies so much I decided to go to school to study movies and I, you know, just kind of appreciate all kinds of movies. But generally, I dig sci-fi. I like things that are a little different, you know, that I don't really like action movies or war movies or, you know, romantic comedies or the ones that are like really cookie cutter kind mm -hmm. of get on my nerves. But the stuff that stands out has interesting stories and, and tells it in an engaging way. It doesn't really matter, you know, what the story is. Gotcha. So there was an old joke when I was in school because I was getting a degree in English. Mm -hmm. And we always joked that if you wanted an English degree but you weren't intending to teach, you needed to learn the term, do you want fries with that? Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you do with a degree in film? Uh, yeah, so I, during my film studies during my time at school um most of my education was towards you know film theory or film production and it was really geared towards you know narrative filmmaking maybe some documentary stuff but really geared towards telling a narrative story with actors and storyboards and all that stuff right but a couple classes i took focused on just doing corporate video doing you know stuff for nonprofits or for for mm. corporations and stuff like that so and I really kind of cling to that because it was something that I was pretty good at and it was something that right out of school I, I had a job where I was still using cameras I was still editing I was producing I was directly involved creatively with uh, what I was doing whereas some of my other friends and and Everyone has their own things, right? So I have a friend that's worked on all these feature films, and now he, you know, I live in Maryland. He moved from Maryland to Georgia to, you know, really be in the film industry. And he's doing location scouting, and he's, like, worked his way up, you know, from assistant to, you know, really having a role there. 
But for me, I just kind of wanted to still stay in this, I have a camera, or I'm editing, or I'm animating, or I'm like creatively being involved. And for me, just doing corporate video kind of work really kind of lined in for that. So that's basically what I do, is I make micro documentaries or animations or promotional videos or stuff for mostly nonprofits and some sometimes educational or government uh, institutions. No, that's fantastic, though, that you, you found a way to make that work for you, because there are so many people who study film who, who don't do that. Yeah. That it just becomes a piece of paper that shows that, you know, they can do four years of college, but it doesn't actually mean anything in the grand picture. So that's great that you found a way to make that work for you. Mm -hmm. And I know a number of the people that you're describing. <laughs> you know, <we've>, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, we went to school together and they kind of dropped out of the, the, the game, if you want to call it that, after after school. Because it is, you don't just get a four-year degree at some shitty uh, school in Maryland and then go on to direct the next uh, big blockbuster. Although right. I did go to the same school as Mike Flanagan, I think his name is. He he directed and created the haunting the house the yeah, haunting, the Hill, haunting house. Of Hill House. Yeah. And then he just did um uh Doctor Sleep. Oh yeah. The sequel to The Shining. Uh, yeah. So granted he went to school I think he graduated a few years before I attended there, so I've never met the guy, but he did go to the same college as me, so maybe I didn't go to the worst school ever. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I find it interesting you said you had a friend who wanted to pursue, you know, bigger projects, so he moved to uh, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, growing up, it was New York or L.A., and now it's, you know, Georgia has a, a central hub. Mm -hmm. North Carolina has a central hub. You know, Wilmington has become a, a real hotbed I, I don't know if it still is i know it was for quite a few years i don't think it's died down yet but it's really interesting how productions have really kind of sprawled out out of those two major hub cities yeah and I, i'm not entirely sure why but i do know that a lot of that comes down to tax subsidies and right how well the state or the city works with the film companies to get them to come there and maryland at one point was doing okay and then around the recession around 2008 2009 2010 when i was getting out of college it was crap you know like and i think it's gotten slightly better but it still hasn't really recovered to the point where like you know that movie annapolis i think it was called mm -hmm. annapolis about the uh, uh coast about guard i think yeah yeah, I mean, it's based in Annapolis, but they shot it in Philadelphia. They didn't shoot it, you know. <laughs> and because Maryland is just, as far as I know, it just isn't a very good place for film production. And so, like, shows like Veep that shot their first four seasons here, they end up moving back to L.A. because it just wasn't worth it anymore. And well, I, I hear you. Walking Dead moved their story north and into virginia mm -hmm. um which is i'm in virginia but they kept production in georgia yeah. <laughs> so it, their, their signs may say that they're in virginia but they're not <laughs> and so that's another thing that kind of led me down this road of corporate especially nonprofit videos because washington dc is kind of the hub for a lot of nonprofits, especially a lot of uh national nonprofits. they'll have their national office in D.C. and they have like 
regional offices or regional affiliates around the country. So we have a lot of work that we do not only around the country, but also like around the world for, for nonprofits that are located in DC, but the work that they do is all over the place. And right. yeah, so it kind of opens up a lot of work in that arena in this area that I think is beneficial for me and the company I work for, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we talked about what kind of movies you like. What are your have not seen this movies? What are the movies that are, you know, holes in your knowledge bank that people give you a hard time for not knowing? <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a few of those. Uh, well, one thing, and I think it's actually kind of funny. Um, I realized maybe when I was like 22, 23, 24, somewhere in that age range that I had never seen a uh, Sylvester Stallone movie. I started going through them on IMDb, and, <laughs> and there was just nothing, right? I like I haven't seen this, and then I was like, maybe I saw Ants, and then I started describing the plot to my friends, and he's like, no, that was a Bug's Life, and I'm like, I, I knew haven't... you were gonna say that. <laughs> it's like I haven't even seen Ants, <laughs> and so like I, up until maybe two years ago or three years ago, I I finally watched a couple Sylvester Stallone movies because I had. You know, I'm a nerd, a geek. I'm in the comic book stuff. I really wanted to see Guardians of the Galaxy 2 when that came out. And Sylvester Stallone was in the movie. And then I, you know, officially had to end my boycott of Sylvester Stallone movies. (laughs) 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 Which, like, for the first part of my life was unintentional. But then for about, like, you know, five to ten years, it was kind of like, well, I haven't yet, so why start, right? (laughs) Right, right. Um... (laughs) But yeah, I, other than that, I think, I mean, there's probably a number of movies I haven't seen. Um, there's probably a number of them that are in those, oh, you need to watch this as a film, you know, as someone who's interested in film, and I just haven't yet. And it's on my li- never-ending list of things I need to catch up on. Um, one of them, I guess, is, I don't know if you've heard of The Conversation? Yes, popular movie in the film circles and i still have not gotten around to watching that and i really want to soon yeah i have not seen that one either it's popped up on my radar a couple of times actually Mm. in the last month month and a half but i haven't seen it yet yeah i mean all the the essential 80s movies i've watched but there's a few that are kind of ones that people refer to that i haven't seen like i i haven't watched labyrinth and i haven't and i didn't watch working girl until like last week because i was interested in watching a couple more mike nichols movies uh in preparation for our discussion today so i caught working girl as kind of a background in mike nichols uh filmography so there's a number of the 80s movies i feel like i i kind of missed and overall i'm not a i feel like 80s movies and even early 90s movies really age poorly (laughs) <laughs> they, they've really dated themselves, and I don't know if it's general style of the movie or style of the, like, what people are wearing and how they're acting, but there's a lot of movies that came out during that time that are just poorly aged. Yeah, no, I agree. More more so than most other decades, and I feel like, and and then I, I never really tried to go out of my way to see see them because of that, I guess. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, surprisingly, one of my have not seen this movies is the movie we're talking about today. 
until watching it for this episode, I had not seen The Graduate. So uh, we are talking about The Graduate today from 1967, directed, as you said, by Mike Nichols, written by Calder Willingham and Buck Henry, based on the novel by Charles Webb, starring Anne Bancroft, Dustin Hoffman, Catherine Ross, William Daniels, and Murray Hamilton. May I ask you a question? What do you think of me? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> hey, there's the award-winning scholar. We're all very proud of you, Ben. What is it, Ben? I guess about my future. Do you find me undesirable? Oh, no, Mrs. Robinson. I think, I think you're the most attractive of all my parents' friends. I don't want to close my eyes. Maybe we could do something else together. Mrs. Robinson, would you like to go to a movie? The world is changing faster than you Say hello to Mrs. Robinson, Benjamin. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Mrs. Robinson. Hey, Ben. Elaine's coming down from Berkeley soon. I want you to call her up. But you won't ever take Elaine out, will you? I want you to promise me that. Benjamin, I thought I made myself perfectly clear about this. I have no intention of ever taking your precious daughter out again in our life, so don't get upset about it. You're the first person I could stand to be with. I'm glad. In order to keep Elaine away from you, I am prepared to tell her everything. I just don't believe you would do that. Try me. That woman, that older woman that I told you about? Benjamin, will you just tell me what this is all about? So, part of the reason I think it blows people's minds when you say you haven't seen a movie like The Graduate is there are moments of it that are so iconic. Everybody knows, Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me, aren't you? Everybody knows the shot of her putting on the stockings with him in, you know, standing in the background. Everybody knows the the bursting into the church and, and pressing up against the glass to interrupt the wedding type thing. So if everybody knows those things, if those are exist in our, our kind of our cultural awareness, how do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it to get them to see it beyond those iconic moments? I think if I was describing The Graduate to someone who hasn't seen it or someone who would be interested in seeing it. I, I think the the main takeaway from The Graduate is this feeling that the characters, not not just um, Dustin Hoffman's character, but other characters in the movie have, uh, Mrs. Robinson and Elaine, kind of have this feeling of they don't know what to do. And I mm -hmm. think that's really powerful and really it resonates with a lot of people even after 50 years since the movie came out. It's still a very effective emotion of... I don't know what's next and it's overwhelming and it's scary and all those things. Right. And then sometimes you go down this path of even self-destruction because it's easier than facing what's in front of you. Yeah. I, I think that's exemplified really well. There's, there's an exchange between Dustin Hoffman's character, Ben and his dad played by William Daniels, where William Daniels asks him what he's doing, and he says, I, you know, just floating here. Ben, what are you doing? Well, I would say that I'm just drifting here in the pool. Why? Well, it's very comfortable just to drift here. Have you thought about graduate school? No. 
Would you mind telling me then what those four years of college were for? What was the point of all that hard work? You got me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I took a note about that too because it's just, it's such a, it rounds off the, encapsulates the movie so well there. Just, you know, sometimes it's nice to just drift or whatever he says, right? <laughs> yeah. And it is, yeah. So you, you, you put this in as a, you know, I put out a call for kind of feel-good movies just trying to deal with putting some positivity and laughter and happiness out there in the midst of the chaos that's going on in the world right now. And a lot of the responses I got were, um, especially 1980s comedies. Mm -hmm. So this one really stood out. Um, so why this movie, why did this one stand out for you to pick? I think I picked this movie for this, or I, I wanted to talk about this movie for our conversation because, because of it, I mean, it kind of comes back to to you, to you yourself. You haven't seen this movie, and you're someone who watches movies and talks about them as part of your, you know, daily life, right? Right, right. And being such a important movie, such a a you know referenced movie, everyone knows these scenes, everyone knows these lines. Movies that we've watched uh, reference them and talk about them, and it's such a powerful movie. And it's still, like I mentioned earlier, is still resonating in like what it was trying to say and how effectively it communicated that. And I think that everyone should watch this movie, right? And when I find someone who hasn't, I do find that a little surprising because it's been fifty years and <laughs> you've had your opportunity, right? right exactly. <laughs> and and I do find that this one and and some others are are one of there's just one of those movies that a lot of people haven't really seen and and they know the they know the wedding scene because they watched Wayne's World too and <laughs> exactly <laughs> and and they're familiar with some other parts of it because they've seen the Simpsons or they've seen this or seen that that have referenced it but they don't know the movie that it it belongs to they don't you know they've listened to all these Simon Garfunkel songs and they love them but they don't know where kind of the origin of a lot of that stuff is and I and I find and like I said I just think this is a movie that everyone should see and if you haven't do what you can to go watch it you know because yeah. it's very entertaining and very very insightful well and I have to admit um I was a little hesitant when you picked this one because my understanding of this was that it's not really a comedy that in a lot of ways it's about some relatively unhappy or disaffected people um and, and I'm happy that I was wrong about that that there are there are scenes that you know I'm watching it by myself but I'm still laughing out loud mm -hmm. at some of the scenes in it and it's it's a good it was a good reminder for me that Dustin Hoffman was once a comedic actor he's significantly strayed from that and and really is in the dramatic side of things from mm -hmm. the bulk of his career but when you go back to his early films he had some real comedic chops a great sense of comedic timing definitely and I, I think speaking of Dustin Hoffman's performance, I think it's just this wonderful mix of this really muted character. Like a lot of his emotions don't, he doesn't really express them until it bottles up, right? But that's where some of the comedy is. So you have that scene in the hotel room where he grabs her breast, right? And she doesn't react and he just gets completely overwhelmed and storms off and starts banging his head against the wall. 
and it's just funny. But part of that is because all of this other stuff has been building up uh, character-wise for him, all these frustrations and all this anxiety, and then he just kind of acts out in a very funny way. Now, have you heard the story about that scene that you just mentioned where he grabs her breast and then goes off and is banging his head into the wall? I know he did it off script and uh, he just kind of felt like he needed to do it. I imagine based on some of the revelations of Dustin Hoffman's character as a person uh, that may have been indicative of some of the things that he would later do in his life that are questionable. Yeah, I'll come back to that in a second. So okay. the the story, as I understand it, is he, he, you know, Bancroft did not know that he was going to do that. That wasn't a scripted moment. He did it because he felt like um, that's what a young man who had never been in that position would do. Mm-hmm. And Mike Nichols started laughing, which caused him to start laughing. But Mike Nichols kept the camera rolling. And so him turning away from her and therefore the camera is so that he's hiding his laughter and him going and bumping his head into the wall is to try and stop from laughing because the camera's still rolling. Yeah. As the, as the story goes. Yeah. Yeah. Hoffman is, there are several stories surrounding this movie and Hoffman that kind of show the signs of not necessarily the most professional or on the up and up person, you know, I mean, there's that scene grabbing her breast, which essentially is an act of sexual assault on the screen. Um, he allegedly pinched Catherine Ross's behind at the audition. Yeah. I read about that. So, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, and I, I try to practice separating the art and artist, especially in something like this, that's been around for, as you said, you know, 50 years. Yeah. So, so the film having been around for 50 years, obviously you're not that old. So what's your history with this movie? When did, how did you discover it? Well, I went to school for film. And uh, like a lot of these movies that everyone should see, we're uh, instructed to see, right? Right. <laughs> and, and I'm glad that I had the opportunity to watch a lot of these movies. And, and I can't remember exactly what class under what circumstances we watched The Graduate. Um, but I probably saw it two or three times for different classes and either wrote papers or spoke on it. And it did speak to me in a lot of ways. So I really enjoyed it. Um, there are a couple projects I worked on in school where, you know, like that montage scene in the middle of the movie for, uh, so the, the montage scene in the middle of the movie, I kind of homage to that in my senior thesis film. You said it, it had things that resonated with you or that you connected with. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a good jumping off point. Uh, what, what did you connect with? What resonated for you? On two levels. So one is just this feeling of being lost. And I and I felt that even before I went back to college, because basically I graduated high school. I went to community college for a year or two. I was overwhelmed with work. I had a couple bad relationships that put me in places where I couldn't really focus on school. I ended up dropping out and I ended up getting a job, you know, doing work completely unrelated to what I really wanted to do, which was, you know, videography, film, whatever, right? And during that time, I I even felt like I don't know where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to do, how am I supposed to move forward with life? And it wasn't until I figured that out on my own, until I learned what I wanted to do and, and what the steps to get there were, 
then I kind of refocused back on school and went through school. And, and then since then, since, you know, I was 24 or 25, where I really decided to redirect my life, it's been this consistent moving forward. I have goals. I have plans. I have this is this is where I'm going, right? But mm-hmm. that time between 17 and 22 or it's just such a lost time. It's just this this time where a lot of people don't really know what they want to do and they don't really but they have all these outside pressures, all these people telling them like this is what you need to you need to go to school, you need to do this, you need to get a job, you need to find someone and get married and do this and all that stuff. And I feel like even 50 years later, this movie speaks of that and it still is relevant. It's still, people still have those problems. They still don't know what do we do next? No, I agree with that. I guess my question I put in my notes as I was watching this, you know, Ben, the the adults, the adults, he's 20, he should be an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, the adults in the movie don't listen to Ben. I have that in my notes, too. I was going to mention that. Yeah, <laughs> And you get this, I mean, like, there's the reoccurring gag about Mr. Robinson offering him, "Do you, are you a scotch man? And mm-hmm. he says, no, bourbon. And he still pours him a scotch. That actually happens twice in the movie. Yeah. You know, the adults at the party aren't listening to him when he says, he. you know, his own parents aren't listening to him at the party when he says mm-hmm. he doesn't want to come downstairs. And then once he does come downstairs, the adults aren't listening to him. And then that's the same relationship he has with Mrs. Robinson when they meet at the hotel. And he's very wishy-washy about getting a room, and she flat out tells him, "Go get a room. You know, this is this is what you're going to do. This is the." And she she kind of lays it out for him. It, it's it, it's not advice; it's instructions. And my question at that point, my thought was, you know, he's so wishy-washy. He's such a pushover. Are are we supposed to like Ben? Yeah, I don't know. I I think you're supposed to relate with Ben, and I think you're supposed to understand what his issues are. But I, I don't know if ultimately you're supposed to like him because ultimately he's not an amazing person, right? He has an illicit affair with his father's partner's wife. He leaves that affair to hook up with her daughter. And all of these are conscious decisions that he's making. But I think that part of what the movie does is put you in a situation where you relate with him on this idea that, that you have no idea what you want to do. And maybe the decisions he's making aren't that great, but would you do any different in that scenario? Okay. So let me ask you this. You, you found this movie when you were in college, so mid-20s. Do, did you see it any differently watching it to prepare for this did you feel any differently towards ben about it i think watching it to prepare for this watching it as as a little bit older and this is actually going a little bit back to when you asked earlier how this resonated with me how the movie resonated with me and and i had talked about there's kind of two points one of the other points and and this is something more that i i relate to as i get older and as i as I've experienced more things is this these mistakes that people make and kind of watching him make these series of really poor decisions and knowing that eventually in his life he probably will figure it out right he probably right. will learn from them or learn from 
other people or or maybe there's a huge fallout to his mistake and he learns from that lesson as well but so yeah watching it when I was 24 I have a different perspective at 35 but part of that is now I know my way now I'm watching him in this situation where he's completely lost I relate back to that because I experienced it but I'm also just seeing all of these mistakes and going like oh yeah really shouldn't do that bad <laughs> but you learn eventually <laughs> right <laughs> and and part of that and and one of the things I, I like so much is the 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 beginning of the hotel scene where he's just completely nervous and feels like all of these people are judging him and and watching him and they all know what he's about to do right and mm-hmm. I think everyone has experienced that kind of feeling of guilt even though no one knows what you did or what you're about to do right right and and it's just this really effective scene of him you know he already knows what he's doing is horrible and he feels judged by everyone and he's stuck in this situation that he can't really get out of because he's like holding the door open for a parade of people and then he has to go talk to the people at the front desk a bunch of times and he all he wants to do is just go like disappear and not be judged but he can't really because he's stuck in this situation where he can't and but but, but he got his toothbrush yeah he got his toothbrush <laughs> All right, so the the reason I asked that, I'm going to pull in the critical review side of this. First of all, it sits at 86% at Rotten Tomatoes, mm-hmm. 83% at Metacritic. It is still quite a lauded film. But what I found really interesting is the critical reviews really weren't looking at it as a, a theatrical release. They were looking at the 30th anniversary of it, which there was, I guess, a big DVD release for it in, in 1997. Okay. So the reviews are looking at it through that window. And so I want you to see what you agree with with this. I think you'll notice a central theme. The positive review comes from Roger Ebert, kind of. Uh, Ebert lauded it in 1967, saying it was one of the best movies of the year. But in his 30th anniversary review, he looked back at himself a little judgy for saying that. And he writes, Today, looking at The Graduate, I see Benjamin not as an admirable rebel, but as a self-centered creep whose put-downs of adults are tiresome. Mrs. Robinson is the only person in the movie who is not playing old tapes. She is bored by a drone of a husband. She drinks too much. She seduces Benjamin not out of lust, but out of kindness or desperation. Makeup and lighting are used to make Anne Bancroft look older. She was 36 when the movie was made and Hoffman was 30. But there is a scene where she is drenched in a rainstorm. We can see her face clearly and without artifice, and she is a great beauty. She is also sardonic, satirical, and articulate, the only person in the movie you would want to have a conversation with. On the flip side, the negative review comes from Salon.com, from Robin Dougherty, who writes, In The Graduate We Remember, Ben rebels against that model of the world, racing to steal Elaine away from the altar, beating off her family and her would-be future and his, with a crucifix he pulls off the wall of our church. One of our the first 60s movie characters to say fuck you to the establishment, Ben lives in our memory as a rebel who hijacked his own awful fate. On actual celluloid, it's a different story. You don't need Nichols' one moment of supreme painful insight, that awful final glimpse of the couple escaping at the back of the bus, barely able to look each other in the eye, to see that nothing Ben does is particularly heroic. Rather than striking a blow for self-determination, he ends up with the exact girl his parents have picked out for him. He barely knows her, but he pursues her because she's everything her mother isn't. Respectable, safe, ready to forgive him for having no vision at all. So both of them kind of have very different views of how they originally perceived the movie and how they perceive it now, 30 years later. 
So that's part of why I was asking if you had any different thoughts on it. Particularly, how do you feel about Mrs. Robinson herself? I think it's interesting that Ebert said that the only person he'd like to have a conversation with is Mrs. Robinson, where Mrs. Robinson is does everything she can to avoid conversations with Benjamin throughout the movie, oh. right? Yeah. And pushes him away when he tries to engage with her emotionally over over just physically. And while I agree on the comment about her, I, I agree that she's not doing, she's not having this affair because of her attraction to Benjamin as a, person but I, I don't I don't know if I see it as a favor or pity because she, I think she just needed to do something different right she needed to rebel as well and I think that's part of the story in that is that it's not only Benjamin who doesn't know what they want to do with their life it's also Mrs. Robinson she also she made a mistake she's been having to deal with the consequences of that. She's married to someone she doesn't love. She's miserable. She gave up on her art, which she went to college for. Um, she made all these mistakes already, and now she's trying to take some control, I guess, back. Yeah, and that, that scene where he does try to reach out to her and talk and have the conversation is just a brilliant scene and it yeah. culminates in that iconic scene of her putting her stockings on that everybody's familiar with but the scene that precedes it that leads up to that moment of him just wanting to have a conversation with her instead of just sex and coming to that realization that she studied art when she just told him she doesn't know anything about art and that realization that she got pregnant at a young age and basically gave up everything her life could have been at that moment she, to me, was almost on the same track that Ben is on, and she never got off of it. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it. And, and I think that, so two things there. I love that scene because they keep on turning the light off and most of the oh, conversation gosh. is in the dark. And I kind of, I see this as a of a reflection of kind of how, where Ben, Benjamin is in that in that conversation, what he knows about her. He's completely in the dark. And then he learns something new and he gets some insight about why she got married and the lights come back on, right? And it's just this kind of immediate, like, the lights come on and he understands. And I thought that was really well done. Oh, yeah. And I, and I love that that scene ends with the, so let's not talk at all. Yeah. Which is exactly where they were at the beginning of the scene. That scene does nothing to give them more strength, which is, I think, what Benjamin was hoping for. Instead, it's now we're not even going to talk about this. So it's now going to become an underlying issue as opposed to something they actually talk about. And when he says, let's not talk at all, you see this immediate kind of look of defeat in both of their eyes. It's not just it's not she got what she wanted and he didn't. You see both of them just look defeated in that moment because I think she was starting to open up over the course of that conversation she was starting to you know grasp this idea that I could open up to someone emotionally and then mm -hmm. they get into discussion about Elaine and it kind of shuts it all down again and I think that she you know she's Benjamin wasn't the only person that kind of was defeated in that conversation I also think that um Going back to, you know, Mrs. Robinson having gone through these similar things that, down this path that Benjamin went and making these wrong mistakes, and now this is the outcome, 
I think part of the reason why she's so insistent that he does not have anything to do with Elaine is because she doesn't want Elaine to do the same thing. She right. doesn't want him to drag. It's not this, oh, you're not good enough. It's it's more of this, I don't want her to become me. Right. right. And I think that's, I mean, it's subtle and it's not directly communicated, but it's it's there, you know? Well, and it's it's almost laying the foundation for some jokes Ben makes later on in the movie where mm-hmm. he jabs at her with things that he knows about her mother now. Like, you know, where did Chad propose to you? Oh, you sure what didn't happen in a car? Yeah. You know, because he found out that that's where Mrs. Robinson and Mr. Robinson were having sex was in the car. So mm-hmm. he's doing it now. El- Elaine doesn't know that. Yeah. But it's a jab that the audience is familiar with now. And then it brings it also back up at the end at the wedding when um, I think Mrs. Robinson tells Elaine that it's too late for her to to leave this this marriage. And she says, not for me, you know. Yeah, she just says it's too late. And that's Elaine's response. Not for me. But it is too late for Mrs. Robinson. It's been too late for her, but it's not for Elaine. It's She still has control over where she goes from there. Right, and if the parents had gotten their way and she had married Chad, if that that is ending his name Chad, seriously, is it Chad? Isn't it Chad? Am I didn't I think it was Chad, that? but but I'm fine with it being Chad. I just <laughs> <laughs> now I feel like I need to double check Carl. No, it's Carl. Carl right. Carl, um, if if she had gone through with her parents' request, you know, if she had married Carl, if she had continued that, the, the wedding hadn't gotten interrupted, she would have been on the same path as her mom. Exactly. Which is exactly and, what her mom yeah. was trying to avoid, and yet somehow she's forcing her there at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't really know why other than, you know, at that point she's she has it, you know, in her mind that Benjamin is the wrong decision, right? Which is funny because think of all the different things the other guys say about Carl. You yeah. know, they call him the makeout king. They basically suggest the only reason he would be getting married is at the end of a shotgun. Uh, where's the wedding being held? Probably at the maternity ward. Mm-hmm. You know, that these are the reasons Carl is going to get married. And that's the man that they picked out instead of Ben. Yeah. And when you think about that, and I think a lot of this movie, and I think it never really spoke to me that way because I wasn't alive in 1967. I, I didn't experience it. In that context, but a lot of the conflict with Benjamin and other people in his life is this kind of old way of doing things versus now. And and he's once he doesn't want to follow in his parents' path. He doesn't want to follow. He doesn't want to do plastics, right? And but he doesn't know. <laughs> but then when you get into this this like locker room scene, everyone in there, all these kids who are you know supposedly younger than Benjamin and and should be representative of the kind of young youth culture are not at that point they're they're more representative of this kind of older mentality i feel like and it is interesting that they kind of chase Elaine to that over yeah. and i think the reason why that's set up is to you know have this stark comparison between Benjamin and them so that you do root for Benjamin at the end. But but I don't really know what you're rooting for, you know, because the, the outcome of it is still not everything's coming up 
you know, roses, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and the review mentioned it. I was going to wait till a little later, but the review mentioned it. You've brought it up now. So we end with them riding this bus off to freedom, off to a new life, mm-hmm. with their faces going from joy to stoicism to whatever you want to call it as Sound of Silence comes back into play. Are we supposed to be happy for them? Are they going to make it? Are they going to, you know, what what happens next? And I love that the movie doesn't tell us that. And I love the fact that there's been no sequel. So what do you think happens next? So my thoughts on the ending, I love the ending of that movie. Uh, I just, I love how they go from this excited, we just won, we just, you know, change the world kind of feeling and then they go and sit down and they reflect like for a second they think about what they did and and their you know joy just kind of drops out and they realize that oh we still don't know right right and i would be very surprised if that relationship went anywhere because (laughs) i you know i've gone through relationships it takes work it's not i mean relationships aren't just based on impulse and and lust it's not that's not how you build a strong relationship right so like that path that they're going down is will likely be fruitless because it's not they didn't he didn't even spend time getting to know her. He went on one date with her, right? That's exactly what I was going to say is unless there's we're unless we're supposed to infer that there's something in between the scenes, which I don't think there is, they went on one date. Yeah. And I think it's something that romantic comedies, romantic movies do a lot where they kind of accelerate this love, right? They they make love into something that you can achieve overnight. And frankly, it always annoys me because, like, I, because, like, it doesn't work that way. And, and no, if it, it doesn't. If it worked that way for one of your listeners, that's great for them. But for the majority of the world, it doesn't work that way. It's 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 a long process, and you have to like get to know someone and get to know their all these things about them for it to be love. But these movies tend to just like accelerate that that so much. But one of the things I like about how The Graduate handle it is that. As, as as impulsive as Benjamin is, it reflects that in the end. It reflects it as, oh, they just ran into this and made a huge mistake, right? It didn't. Mm-hmm. It didn't leave you believing that you know their one date where he took her to a, a burlesque show and and <laughs> treated her like shit the whole night led to them being you know the the perfect couple together it, because. It just doesn't really work that way in real life. Right. I mean, he takes her on one date. He spends half the night treating her like shit, as you said. He takes her to a strip club. He drives like a maniac. He's a jerk. He finally comes clean with her. And so they have half of a lovely evening. And Mm -hmm. then the next date that they're supposed to go on, he reveals that he slept with her mother. Yeah. That's not a foundation for a solid relationship at At all. all. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's this the 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 stuff at Berkeley where he's like following around with her, being really charming, trying to win her back. I think that that's an effective like way of showing that they have some chemistry, but it's not a demonstration of love, right? Oh, and it does not play well in today's society. Yeah, because it plays like he's stalking her, and because he is, <laughs> because he is, yeah, and it's it's completely bizarre. And I think that. What it really shows is that Elaine was as confused about what she needed to do or what she wanted to do 
and she was being pressured into marrying this guy Carl and then Benjamin showed up and started pounding on some glass and it was a way out right mm-hmm. and whether that way out ends in five days or five years or you know f- for the rest of their life all it was was a, a band-aid I think to the the overall problem that she was experiencing and it's the same thing her mother you know suffered from it's the same thing Benjamin's experienced the same thing that a lot of people experience in that time in their life is just this complete uh lack of direction and and what should i do next right yeah are you a podcast fan and you're looking for a new audio drama to get into check out a journey beyond the skies A Journey Beyond the Skies is a sci-fi series told through the narrated journal entries of Declan Wolf. Join Declan as he embarks on a journey that will take him everywhere from a cyberpunk city through dangerous wastelands and even beyond Earth itself. There's even a Patreon page featuring expansive bonus content like pages from Declan's own journal, which include his notes and sketches about the world around him. The podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast platforms. For more information, visit journeybeyondtheskies.com. Well, we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the music. You did mention it way earlier in the conversation. The music, of course, provided by Simon and Garfunkel. And, you know, I know the songs. Again, iconic part of the movie. Uh, Everybody knows Mrs. Robinson. But what I I noticed about halfway through the movie is there's a a sequence where Scarborough Fair plays. Mm. And then it plays again. And then it plays again. And I was (laughs) like, this is getting really repetitive and then I realized, well, wait a minute. This is capturing Benjamin's mindset, yeah. the, the repetition of it. And then I got to thinking about it and realized the movie's kind of divided into the three parts based on the Simon and Garfunkel songs. It yeah. opens with Sound of Silence, and you have that coming and going in and out of the picture. And then it moves to Scarborough Fair, which you have in a very short period of time repeating itself. And then you have Mrs. Robinson towards the end. So the fact that they bring back Sound of Silence in that last shot is very telling that Benjamin hasn't moved anywhere with his life. Yeah, he hasn't. So I mentioned earlier as well the the comedic performance of uh, Dustin Hoffman here. You know, that, that it really, he carries himself quite... I mean, he plays it very straight, but he also has some just brilliant moments. Like, his first scene with Mrs. Robinson when they've gone to her house and she's she's very clearly a predator from the get-go with him mm-hmm. but she's trying to reveal a little bit of herself and she asks him did you know I was an alcoholic and and that should be a straight line but the response he gives which unfortunately I can't throw a sound cue in because it's visual yeah. the response he gives is where the laughter comes from yeah and a lot of his responses are visual or like the way he looks at things and the way that he does things and it's a lot of really funny actions i think that you know and i I read something about how 
most people felt that when they were putting this movie together, that Dustin Hoffman was just not the right casting choice for this movie. And and I don't know who, who else was a good option, but, but Mike Nichols really wanted to push for Dustin Hoffman. And, and I think it did pay off because I think that his performance in this movie was essential for making it what it is. Because, like, this movie made, you know, in the 90s with Sean William Scott as the main person, and so, you <laughs> oh, know, God. like, would be a horrible movie, yeah, right? I was going to say, stop before they hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it would just be a horrible movie. And what really made it good and made it engaging was the performances by Dustin Hoffman. The performance by Anne Bancroft. It, it is really powerful. And there's all these really subtle, funny moments that, that stand out as just being, this is the reason why I believe it won Best Directing, right? Is because yeah. of how great these actors were able to communicate the the performance well and it's and it's other moments as well like one mm. of my favorite laughs is when he tells his parents that he's going to marry elaine and you know he tell they're like oh when did she say yes and he's like oh she doesn't know yet and they're like you know well, is she happy and he's like no she doesn't even like me and he goes yeah. <laughs> to walk out the door and the toast pops up to kind of put a button on the scene but it's like between his delivery of oh she doesn't like me and the toast popping up is just mm-hmm. like i don't know why that's funny but it really is yeah, no, I agree. One of uh, one of the parts that I uh, thought was funny that really stood out to me is when uh, they're talking the first time they're in the hotel room together, and she's like, "Do you not find me attractive?" And he's like, "You're the most attractive of all my parents' friends." <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But <laughs> but just... that scene also illustrates what I was saying about her being predator from the start. Is oh, exactly that she moves to referring to him as inadequate. She manipulates him into having sex with Exactly. It's pure manipulation. Yeah. He did not want to do it from the beginning. He went there. He felt guilty. Didn't want to do it again. And she manipulates him into into doing it. And then proceeds to kind of manipulate him down this path over the next few months, which is demonstrated over the the kind of montage in the the movie uh, of turning from this guy who didn't know what he wanted to do into kind of a, a, you know, a jerk. Right. Right. Well, and I, and I wonder if that's what Ebert is talking about when he says that she's the person worth having a conversation with, because she is kind of a master manipulator. She's manipulated him. She manipulates her daughter, despite the fact, not recognizing that she's setting her daughter down the similar path. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there is a depth to Mrs. Robinson that, maybe isn't quite as evident for the other characters. I Yeah, I think she's definitely a more interesting character in terms of what, you know, all these different levels about her. And I think she's, I think there's a lot of unsaid things about her character, a lot of subtle, you know, who she is and what took her from this young optimistic artist to this alcoholic, depressed woman who is you know doesn't like her life and isn't interested in the things that she used to like and is willing to just manipulate this boy into having sex with her just because she wants to to change or to control things right and i think that those character flaws those that that characterization of her is more interesting than just oh i'm 20 and i don't know what i want to do with my life right yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I agree with 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 that. I just also I just thought it was funny that he said that, even though she was just like, I'm not talking to anybody. Right. <laughs> you know, she shut down every conversation anyone ever tried to have with her in the movie. That's true. I mean, I, obviously, the one we talked about earlier, the, the big conversation scene, but that's she does kind of shut down every every piece of dialogue, doesn't she? Yeah. And I, I mean, think and I th- almost think that's part of her resentment at Ben when he when, when he reveals the truth about the affair. Mm-hmm. She couldn't shut him down and she took away her ability to control that that moment. Yeah, I agree. And then she, I mean, she goes back and and manipulates it more by saying it was rape and and other things to to manipulate her into what she wants. And then, you know, when uh, Mr. Robinson shows up in Berkeley, I'm still not sure if he thinks that Benjamin raped his wife or thinks they just had an affair. And I know that he starts off strong with it. You are a horrible, despicable person, right? But if... He thought it was rape. I feel like his reaction would have been stronger. So I think at some point it came out that it wasn't rape. Yeah, she I agree. also talks about how they're getting a divorce and other things. So also have to give a shout out in that little bit there of Norman Fell playing the the super of the boys' mm-hmm. home there, who of course would go on to play the super in Three's Company. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I love that scene. Like he's been trying to get Benjamin to leave since he moved in, and then Mister Robinson like rushes out, yelling how horrible he is, and he's just like, "Get out!" <laughs> right? Exactly. And it's just such a. It, that was one of those funny moments that just in the middle of this like high stress anxiety situation, you just have this little funny funny moment that makes you laugh. Yeah, I, as I said, I was a little wary of this one because I knew it had some serious kind of darker moments, but it really does have a good blend of comedy and drama in it. Mm-hmm. it. It really is masterfully assembled. I mean, Mike Nichols did a fantastic job with it. I think he did. And you had, you know, your your call was for lighter movies. And I, I can't say that if you weren't asking for lighter movies, if I necessarily would have went with The Graduate, I think there are some other movies I'd probably would have talked about but i started thinking through them and i'm like everything that has you know that story that really is effective i think there is just a level of darkness to it it can't just be happy right yeah because happy isn't a story conflict is story and and resolution happy resolution isn't always the best resolution you know true true well and i mean there is yeah i mean there's a satisfaction in the happy ending but and this definitely does not have that. But there is a resolution to it that is at the same time satisfying. I like where we yeah. leave the characters. I like that we don't know what's going to happen next. There's a we can read a lot into what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. I like I like that too. I think it's one of the, and I, I am I think there's a time and place for happy endings, for sad endings, for endings that don't end, or endings that are very concrete. This is this is what happens and. And I and I understand that you don't end this, you know, happy, you know, romantic comedy on, you know, one of the characters getting shot. Right. Like the, the, right. the, the tone there is so vastly different. It, it doesn't work. But I do like that this movie and a lot of other movies like it, it gives the characters what they want, but what they think they want but it also just kind of like leaves it lingering a little bit and let, lets you wonder what's next, right? 
Yeah. I think it's a really effective way of engaging your audience because at the end of the movie, they're not leaving just done with it. They're they're still engaged. They're still talking yeah. about it. They're still thinking about it. They're still wondering, you know, what is that the answer to that question? What what happens next? That that's a brilliant way of putting it. And that's I, I love open ended stories specifically for that because it allows me to stay engaged with the story. I've never thought about it in those terms, but that nails it perfectly. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we move into the end credits here? Um, I don't know if you want to talk about the uh, the scene where where she kind of strips in front of him, and there's these like really rapid cuts of her body. Yeah, that was a really interesting way to approach nudity. Yeah. So the scene in in Mrs. Robinson's house, the first time that Benjamin goes over there and she is trying to pin him down in Elaine's room and try to keep him, you know, in there so she can seduce him, right? And then right. he keeps on trying to leave. And this is another instance of her being predatory, being, you know, manipulative and trying to essentially, you know... Get what she wants. Get what, yeah, get what she wants out of it. Yeah, and I, and I loved the manipulation in that scene where she sends him for her purse because she's in the bathroom mm-hmm. and tells her to put it in uh, Elaine's room. Because you knew, as soon as she says that, you're like, oh, she's going to trap him in there. It's like watching a you know, documentary about wild animals. Yeah, and the whole entire t- movie leading up to that point and, and after for a while, there's a lot of these really long shots. It's a lot of long takes, and we see the action from beginning to end, and we're not doing all these little cuts and inserts and everything. It really allows you to kind of breathe in the shot. But then in that scene, you know, she comes in and the rhythm of the cuts steps up and you're seeing all these like cl- flashes. When he when he accidentally sneaks a peek, you see a flash of a breast or a flash of her waist or or her navel or, you know, and it's it's a really interesting way of handling that type of situation instead of just like, all right, here's a, you know, a five second shot of full frontal nudity and you're done, right? So instead you have these little glimpses and you're kind of seeing it through Benjamin's perspective there and he's trying not to look, but it's impossible not to look because he's right there, you know, being confronted by this naked lady, you know? Right. Well, and it's not the only time the camera does that. I noticed that at the party, you know, the first real scene of the movie, the party stays in really close on him. You're only getting parts of people's heads, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's, it's that, pent up that that feeling of being trapped yeah. you know that it's it's tackling it, it's it's communicating to the audience his anxiety at even being there and then you move to this situation where it's those flashes of nudity and again it's really capturing ben's mindset of what's going on yeah and i i think that, i mean and that's kind of the style of how they shot the movie in, and and i really i love the cinematography in this movie because the whole you know first half does that it's a lot of really long shots he's using really long lenses and everything just feels claustrophobic so these really tight shots from far away and they're long shots they're long takes like the the first shot that opens up with him sitting in not the first shot of the movie but the first shot of his house it opens up with him sitting in front of this aquarium and like you said there's you know people coming in but you can't really see them and then his father like sits in front of him and kind of blocks the camera for most of the conversation and then Mm -hmm. it kind of pulls back out and so it's this fairly long take i think the the whole take is probably a couple minutes long but it's all done with this really essentially a a 
you know, a zoom lens from outside of the door almost. Right. And it really makes you feel claustrophobic and you're feeling his anxiety. And it does that all the way up to, you know, around the time of this montage where it kind of goes through his summer. And then from there, it switches how it's shot to be less tight shots and, and more open open shots to, to show, you know, when he gets to Berkeley and does all that, that he's doesn't feel as anxious and as claustrophobic anymore. Right. And I, I really like how the cinematography in the movie communicates Benjamin's attitude. Pretty yeah. Much, which is yeah. No, it's, it's cool. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's head into the end credits here. We start up with the algorithm says this is kind of a lightning round. Uh, these are movies that are recommended by various algorithms saying if you like The Graduate, then you will like these movies. You've got a really interesting mix here. I think mostly just kind of the concept of classics, although I definitely see some thematic connections. But it's a lightning round. Do you like these movies? Why? Why not? Real quick type thing. Okay. Okay. All right. So first up, Midnight Cowboy. I have not seen it. So Ooh. that is one of my uh, have not seen this movies. Uh, there you go. I was go. going to try to watch it. Because it's another Dustin Hoffman movie, and I know that it's... It's the next Dustin Hoffman movie. It's what he would go yeah. on to do after this one. Um, but I have not been able to watch that yet. Okay. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde is... So it's it's one of the movies that is uh, kind of credited with the start of American New Wave, right? Which right. The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, a lot of other movies... Uh, over the next decade of movies kind of fit into this, this um, category. And I really, I really like Bonnie and Clyde a lot, but granted I have not, I watched it in editing class in 2008. So I, <laughs> I, I have not watched it in 12 years, but I do, I did really enjoy it when I did watch it. And I think it kicked off this American new wave category which i which i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these movies that you're going to list are in that kind of probably yeah that that area all right butch cassidy and the sundance kid have not seen that one really nope. see now it, we're making a complete list here because i haven't seen bonnie and clyde but i've seen the other two so <laughs> <laughs> all right uh annie hall annie hall um i really like annie hall it is another uh, american new wave film um yeah woody allen and Diane Keaton. I found it interesting when I watched it because I, I watched it, you know, as an adult, you know, and more recently than not, right? And right. and I feel like a lot of these movies in and even The Graduate to some extent, I feel like and I and I mentioned this earlier about how, you know, 80s and early 90s movies date themselves and I feel like a lot of these movies that fall into this American new wave area have become kind of timeless in a way and yeah you can tell that they're based in the 70s and you can tell they're made in the 70s because you know the film isn't the same doesn't look the same as the stuff that we we have today but the content and how the stories are told and what the stories that they're telling are these kind of timeless things that are are easy to relate to throughout so you watch annie hall and it's the story of this relationship falling apart and you see it from the beginning to end and it's told out of order and it's, it's told in a really fun way where you could see it all come together. And that is pretty consistent with a lot of movies that have been more recent. You know, you watch eternal sunshine and the spotless mind and it's 
almost the same concept. It just adds a little sci-fi framing to it to communicate it a little differently. That's a good point. Yeah. So I really like Annie Hall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Streetcar Named Desire. I have not seen Streetcar Named Desire. Okay. The Apartment. I haven't seen that one either. I'm not even familiar with the apartment. That is early, young, uh, early Billy Wilder film with Jack Lemmon. It's really worth checking out. Okay. I'll add that to my list. All right. Uh, Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strange. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know about the connection other than it maybe, you know, being around the same time period when it was released. I, I like Dr. Strangelove. I am not the biggest Kubrick fan. I'm actually, the movies he makes don't always connect with me, I guess. Yeah. And I, I think, I know, you know, he's very popular amongst, you know, film people, people that enjoy films, but, or, or watching like, you know, auteurs and, and, you know, indie films and, and all that stuff. But I, I, none of his movies have really connected with me in any, any real way, I guess. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. And I've watched a number of them. Like I've watched... Clockwork Orange. I watched uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. I've seen, you know, and I'm not going to list all of his movies, but I've seen a lot of his movies. <laughs> and and at the end of the day, none of them. I haven't watched any of his movies where I left it going like, "Oh, this is the best movie I've ever seen." Right. No, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I I have a complicated relationship with Kubrick's films. Is all I'll say. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I think the best one is Full Metal Jacket, and even that one. The first half is so much better than the second half. At the end of it, I feel like, why did you make that in the two movies? <laughs> because, <laughs> because I agree like, wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one was such a better movie than the, the second one. <laughs> yep. All right. Lastly, uh, odd and a really odd inclusion, I think, Little Women, uh, last year's Greta Gerwig picture. Hmm. I didn't make it out to see that yet. I've heard it's very good. Uh, my wife saw it and she said it was very good. Uh, but I have not seen last year's Little Women yet. Yeah, me neither. Movies are just so expensive now, and as much as I enjoy them, I can't afford to go see every one of them. So I usually wait for things to come out on some sort of digital or or Netflix or something like that before I watch them these days. Yep, I'm in the exact same boat. I totally, I've talked about that on the show before. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just... $20 ahead to go see a movie and it's just I can't afford that. <laughs> yeah, no. To see everything I want to see. All right, we always end with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions related to the movie. Are you ready? Sure thing. All right. Number 1, by his own admission, Dustin Hoffman was an unlikely contender for the role of Ben. You talked about this a little earlier. Uh, what actor was a more seriously considered contender until Mike Nichols nixed it asking the actor could you honestly imagine a guy like you having difficulty seducing a woman? A. Warren Beatty, B. Robert Redford, C. Paul Newman, or D. Steve McQueen? I know that both Warren Beatty and Robert Redford were considered at some point in time, but I think it was Warren Beatty was more seriously considered. No, you had no? the right too, but it was Robert Redford. It was that, Robert Redford? Okay. Yeah, Mike Nichols said, you know, have you ever had trouble picking out up a woman and Redford said no, and he said exactly why you're wrong for the role. Uh, <laughs> interestingly, Redford tested for the role and read opposite Candace Bergen as Elaine. Yeah. All right, number two. Once Hoffman did get considered for the role, he still faced obstacles. Among them, he showed up at producer Joseph E. Levine's office for an interview and was mistaken for a window cleaner. How did Hoffman allegedly respond to the mix-up? A, he threw a fit, screaming his television credits at the producer. 
B, he ignored the producer, picking up his phone and calling Mike Nichols for support. C, he nodded and left, rescheduling the meter for a meeting for a later time. Or D, he started washing the windows in character as Ben. He, D, he started washing the windows as Ben. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Which seems so true to form for Dustin Hoffman. Well, I mean, so he's a, he's a method actor. Right. right. And, and... I, I have mixed feelings toward method acting. So I think oftentimes it just allows actors to be dicks to people. And then they're like, oh, I'm just method acting. Yeah. It's um, not me. It's. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you ever watched the documentary on Netflix with Jim Carrey? It's, yes. It's <laughs> a fast way to hate Jim Carrey. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, I cut myself. I was going to say, it's not me. It's Andy Kaufman. And I was like, well, yeah. that, that probably isn't the best reference for everybody. But yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, number three, Nichols originally wanted a French woman to play Mrs. Robinson, citing the idea that in French culture, older women tended to train young men in sexual matters. Eventually, he had to give up the idea of a French woman in order to maintain another aspect of the film he wanted. What did he trade for? A, casting Dustin Hoffman as Ben. B, the final scene showing Ben and Elaine on the bus. C, the music from Simon and Garfunkel. Or D, the line plastics. I think it's the music. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he traded in order to keep the music from Simon and Garfunkel. All right, and then last question. Despite the amount of time in her underwear, actress Anne Bancroft had a no-nudity clause put in her contract. How did Mike Nichols get around this for the scene where Mrs. Robinson approaches Ben fully naked, which we just talked about towards the end of our conversation? A, he ignored the contract and made Bancroft strip down. B, they used body double Linda Gray, who also provided the legs for the iconic stocking scene. C, they never got shots of nudity and used stock footage from another production for the scene. Or D, they got a stripper from a local club. <laughs> and I, I'm assuming it's either B or D. Um, is it D? That sounds funny. It is D. <laughs> they got a stripper from the local club who also refused to take off her pasties, so they had to get another stripper from the club. <laughs> That's funny. All right, man. So where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Yeah. So I currently host a podcast called Script Prompt 2. And on Script Prompt 2, we brainstorm and improvise unique film and television script concepts based on random creative prompts like genre, character, setting, and prop. And you can find us on Facebook Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is scriptprompt2. Or you can find us at scriptprompt2.com. Fantastic. Definitely a podcast worth checking out. Thanks. All right, man. I really appreciate it. As I said, this was kind of one of those big holes in my movie knowledge, and I am glad to finally get the chance to have checked it out. And I'm really, I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to have this conversation. It was a lot of fun. So. Yeah. All right. Thanks, man. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. You can share your thoughts about The Graduate or maybe tell me a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Town Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or you can email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode, which tells the legendary adventures of Arthur, King of the Britons, at least as long as you brought some coconuts for traveling. 
Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Chad Schreiner for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This.